So we created Stigma as Curable because we wanted to put an online venture together, a program together to build a sense of community in these times where we're kind of extracted from seeing people. And so we're going to meet each month and each month is going to be a different topic. Um, but before we do that, I just want to share with you a little bit about the Promethean Project and how we're doing this. Uh, we are a nonprofit that functions on grants and donations. And our main goal is really to create this community around wellness and really have this connection back and forth. Today's um, topic is about the myths and strengths of ADHD. And we have Tabitha and Lori who are gonna help us out um, give us some background information, resources, and be here to answer your questions and any insights uh, that they have on the topic. Let me introduce our expert <laughs> panelists and uh, have them tell their story and then get into what they want to present and um, what they have for you tonight. So without further ado, we have Tabitha Mancini and Lori Como. Oh, hello. Thank you, Steve, for having us this evening. And thank you everyone for coming out tonight and uh, hopefully sharing your views and your opinions and, uh, and your thoughts on this, on this really important topic that Tabitha and I um, are pretty passionate about. Um, we really appreciate the connection to Steve um, and his work in launching and promoting uh, the Community Partners year-long conversations. Um, and we're just thrilled to be part of this programming. And um, we actually, I'm gonna have Tabitha maybe give us a little bit about her background. So, um, and just talking a little bit about what we do and who we are. Um, over this past year, Tabitha and I um, have created CLS, Collaborative Learning Services. Uh, we do a wide variety of things, but we're basically an educational consulting and academic support company that works with students, um, educators, and parents in regard to um, basically ADHD and learning disabilities primarily. We do coaching, learning strategies, accommodation, college transition, and advocacy. Our passion really is transforming learning, but it's also kind of part of the social justice umbrella as well, and that we're trying to dispel the idea of learning differences and kind of promote that we're all on a spectrum of neurodiversity and we all have learning challenges and strengths. So that idea we're trying to get into people's minds a little bit more. Um, if you're interested to learn more a little bit about us, we are at myclavativelearning.com and my email address and Tabitha's email address is here. Um, my background is over 20 years working with students with ADHD and learning disabilities um, and also autism spectrum disorders um, in higher education. And uh, I currently, work at Landmark College, as does Tabitha, and she can talk about that as well. Um, I work in their Drake Center, and Tabitha works with the Landmark um, Institute for Research and Training. So I'm gonna let Tabitha talk a little bit about herself and what she does. So I do, as Lori mentioned, in addition to private practice, and Lori and I working together, uh, I'm the director of outreach for, our, for at Landmark College, um, specifically around uh, online programming for students, uh, neurodiverse students. Uh, in addition to that, I'm an education, so I have 
multiple uh, jobs. Um, I'm also adjunct faculty at the University of Connecticut, where I teach on um, the topic of disability services and higher education. So basically what that means is that people wanting to be disability service providers in colleges and universities, um, I would uh, teach them how to do those jobs. So it spans a lot of topics within assistive technology advocacy, transition, higher ed, and policy. Nice. So to give you a little bit of an idea of what we hope to kind of do today, um, we're going to kind of formally review the purpose of tonight's conversation. Uh, we're going to present the PowerPoint about ADHD myths and strengths. And in the spirit of universal design, we want to encourage a respectful environment where we all feel empowered to speak our minds. Um, and certainly feel comfortable to take notes during the presentation, write down any questions you might have. I know that a lot of uh, participants have submitted questions to Steve as well, um, but if there's something that pops up, jot it down and we'll answer questions at the end of the PowerPoint presentation and, and certainly um, enjoy ourselves as we go through this evening. So the authority I'm gonna bounce back and forth between slides. So um, our purpose for this evening is to really have a conversation focusing on understanding social consequences of inaccurate perceptions of ADHD, um, dispelling the myths of ADHD, and promoting a common definition in language, and encouraging a more accurate understanding of ADHD and skips. So some of the social consequences um, of the myths and misunderstandings really around ADHD, what it is um, and its effects, uh, are emotional hardships. So examples of uh, people feeling bad, um, feeling inadequate, um, a lot of shame, and social uh, and academic withdrawal and low self-esteem. Um, and also a stigma and fear of retaliation for asking for accommodations and, and fear and also well-rounded um, fear because there is so much misunderstanding about, um, about ADHD um, and the realities of it. And also we see that there's higher incident of juvenile criminal behavior. Um, it's estimated that up to 85% of incarcerated youth uh, have disabilities, and ADHD is one of the highest disability categories. Um, and then also approximately 55% of um, uh, people, juveniles who are incarcerated, um, then are back into the system um, as about 12 months. Um, and also at a higher risk for substance abuse. Um, and, and individuals with ADHD experience um, much higher rates of anxiety. About 47% of adults with ADHD experience an anxiety disorder. And we'll talk more about that as well as uh, For sure. You know, part of tonight and kind of gathering information about what to talk about, I think one of the biggest um, challenges out there is actually defining ADHD. What is it, you know, and what isn't it? And having some common language around this is, is kind of important to understand it at its most basic level. Um, Tabitha and I both are big proponents of Dr. Thomas Brown. Um, much of this presentation is based on his work, but his definition of ADHD is being recognized as a developmental impairment of the brain's management system, its executive functions. 
I know that phrase executive functions is out there a lot um, or EF as we call it. And, uh, and it's something to really be very familiar with when it comes to ADHD. As we move through these myths versus facts, um, you know, it's gonna become more and more apparent how this management system is working or struggling um, and kind of tying it back to that. And then in the, your own work that you do with people either as a professional, as a parent, um, or however ADHD might touch your life, to kind of think about this in relation to the things that you're seeing someone be challenged by and that it's not being done deliberately. Head back to that brain, what is the brain doing or not doing as well? Um, so we'll kind of go through these myths um, one by one. So the, the book that we are kind of focusing in on uh, that describes these myths so well is The Unfocused Mind in Children and Adults by Dr. Thomas E. Brown. Um, and myth number one, and we hear this a lot. I hear this a lot with uh, parents, probably in particular, part of my role is I'm an ADHD parent coach. Um, you know, why can't my kid just kind of do it? Because he or she can do things they like to do. So why can't they just focus on another task at hand if they really want to do it? But that's kind of from the observer's viewpoint, right? So we see in the outside world, if someone without ADHD isn't doing something, there might in fact be a lack of willpower. I often say to the students I work with, you know, I've never met a student so far who doesn't want to get the work done. Um, and so I've never met a student yet who isn't motivated to do the work, is that their brain is challenged by activation. So this is a chemical problem in the brain's management system. So keep that in mind. Uh, that's where it kind of lies. Um, myth number two, ADHD is just a simple problem of hyperactivity or not, not listening when someone's talking to you. Um, actually, it's a very complex disorder. If we think about our executive function, our management system in our brain, which I'm gonna talk about in a little bit as well, um, it's a complex disorder. Uh, involves all of these areas, focus, organization, activation, regulating our emotions, our memory, and other functions of the brain's executive function system. So it's much more complex than just someone being hyperactive or someone choosing not to listen, which is actually not what's going on. People with ADHD have overactive brains. That's the myth. And they need medication to calm them down. That is not what's going on. It's actually an underactivity of the brain's management networks. When you see brain images of someone with ADHD and someone without in the frontal lobe of the brain, which is where the executive function system rests. And if we see on that brain image lighting and a lot of things lighting up in that area, that is not the ADHD brain. The ADHD brain is the one that isn't lit up a lot in that area. And when we kind of draw pictures of this, just to give people an idea, people always guess, it must be the brain that lights up a ton because they're hyperactive or they're always distracted, or they're always thinking, but that's not the case. It's an underactivity of the brain's management. So the medication actually increases alertness and improves this communication. Two neurotransmitters, dopamine and norepinephrine, are inefficient in the ADHD brain. They're there, they're in existence. There's just a little bit of difficulty with holding and releasing, and that's what kind of wreaks havoc on that um, management system. So. Um, this is a huge misconception, like a huge misconception in my opinion, um, that ADHD is just a label for behavior problems. You know, that children with ADHD refuse to sit still, they're not willing to listen to teachers or parents, just not the situation, right? 
some individuals with ADHD may have a few behavior problems, but that's not the majority of what's happening. It's chronic inattention symptoms actually cause more severe and longer lasting problems for learning, relationships, managing one's life. It's not a behavioral issue most of the time. So children with ADHD usually outgrow it as they enter their teen years. Just not, not the case. You know, oftentimes the impairments are not even noticeable until the teen years. When we have to manage more in our life, manage the workload in school, the academic load. Um, so ADHD may be more subtle, but more disabling during adolescence than in childhood. So the big question here, right? If you weren't diagnosed with ADHD as a child, you mustn't have it as an adult. You know, we're just kind of in a phase of the history of the diagnosis of ADHD where still many adults have struggled their entire lives with undiagnosed ADHD. Um, and they may not have received help because they have assumed that the chronic difficulties are their fault. Um, and maybe they're lazy or unmotivated. And one of my, uh, I guess, challenges in describing ADHD with people and kind of talking about the language that we use I think it's so important to understand that those two words, laziness or unmotivated, or the word procrastination, which really, for me, drives me batty at this stage, because for those people who have control of their executive functions, you might choose to be lazy, or you might choose not to engage in work. But if your brain has difficulty activating, in other words, getting started, and in the research with ADHD, you need one of two things to activate fear or excitement, that's not an issue of laziness. That's a chemistry of the brain issue. It doesn't mean that students still aren't responsible for the work that they have to get done and maybe learn strategies and how do you do that if it's that challenging. But oftentimes students, you know, that's where learners start to feel inadequate. That's when learners, their self-esteem starts to get affected because they're being told something they're not. And after a while, they kind of start to say, maybe I am, and take it as an internal piece of who they are, and that's just not the case. Myth number seven is that uh, everyone has symptoms of ADHD, and um, any intelligent person can overcome the symptoms of ADHD, so as if it's um, a matter of willpower. And in actuality, ADHD affects individuals at all levels of intelligence. So um, there can be somebody who tests very high in IQ and somebody who tests very low. It's all over the spectrum. Um, so it really has nothing to do with intelligence and has, and has absolutely nothing to do with, um, with willpower and being able just to, um, to overcome it. Um, and many, um, but those sometimes uh, chronic impairments from these symptoms uh, would have an ADHD diagnosis. So in other words, it's not whether or not somebody has the symptoms of ADHD. Sometimes we can't focus. We all can't focus. Um, we experience a lot of that right now um, with COVID and being um, very isolated from others. And it, and it definitely affects us. But it's really to the degree in which that happens. Um, oh, so you, the other myth is that you can't um, have ADHD along with depression, anxiety, or other um, psychiatric diagnosis, and that is absolutely um, not true. In fact, it's very common um, to have co-occurring um, 
uh, struggles with um, anxiety, depression, um, and also learning disabilities. So an individual with ADHD is six times more likely to have another um, diagnosis, psychiatric or learning disorder than other people without. Um, and these are commonly um, overlap. And then when they do, they, they interact. I, I like this myth a lot because I, I, I deal with this myth a lot. Um, there's still a lot of um, stereotypes around ADHD medications. There's still a lot of concern and fear around ADHD medication. So the myth here, ADHD medications are likely to cause long-term problems with substance abuse, especially when used by children. Um, I think that um, because um, it's a controlled substance stimulants that people think that addiction is going to increase when used. And in the research, it is the complete opposite. And this should be actually alarming, I think. And I wish it was communicated more out there in the world because the risks of taking appropriate ADHD medication are minimal, whereas the risks of not using medication to treat ADHD are significant. The medications used for ADHD are among the best research for any disorder. Um, couple of good statistics. Um, this is from Attitude Magazine. This is also in the same book that we're utilizing um, from Tom Brown, but half of all adults with untreated ADHD will develop a substance use disorder at some point in their lives. Um, that is significant. You know, parents get very concerned that their child might be addicted to this, but this is just like any other medication when used the way it's supposed to be. And usually there is some trial and error that's in the research. It's also in our experience that students go through two or three different iterations of medication or dosaging and really important to work with a psychiatrist or a pediatrician who's quite familiar um, with ADHD. Um, but it is, is startling, it is startling, um, the statistics around this. And so those, um, another little mini statistic here, this is from Harvard uh, study, they analyzed data from six studies and found that people with ADHD who received appropriate treatment in childhood almost always with stimulant medication, were 50% less likely than their untreated peers to abuse drugs or alcohol as a teenager or young adult. So critical kind of piece of information. Um, the efficacy rate of ADHD medication is very high, 70 to 80% effective. However, there are lots of executive function areas, right? And in the research, it only affects two significantly, attention and regulation of emotion. So that activation piece and those other pieces that are kind of floating around may improve some, but doesn't directly impact um, those areas. So again, I just wanna kind of say that it's an issue, it's a, it's a chemical inefficiency, it's not a behavioral issue. Um, and even in the research when they added, you know, punishments and rewards or cognitive behavioral therapy. There is, no, there were no better results along with medication than just medication alone. It doesn't mean it doesn't address many other things, um, but just so that you know how effective medication is. So, ADHD does not cause much damage to a person's life. Um, the fact is that untreated or inadequately treated ADHD often severely impairs learning, family life, education, work life, social interactions, and driving safety. Most individuals with ADHD who receive adequate treatment, however, function quite well. 
you know, when we think about these executive functions, obviously this isn't just school. This is life, this is work. These are our relationships and we have to use these skills in order to manage our lives. Um, and so these six clusters are, are the cognitive problems mostly reported by people with ADHD. These are the areas that seem to be affected the most. Um, and, and you can see how impactful they can be to a school day for a child and how exhausting it can be. Um, the research shows, and this is pretty significant, that up to 30% of a lag in executive function happens for individuals diagnosed with ADHD, a 30% lag. Sometimes that's why it takes a little bit longer for someone with ADHD to process something or to work on something or um, to maintain alertness. Um, take a test, access recall, need a little bit more time. The intellect might be there to acquire that information and understand it, but a little bit more time just to produce it. So that's pretty significant. And you can imagine how exhausting this is for a student in school by the end of that day. You know, and sometimes parents are like, well, you know, I want them to come home from school and start the homework and get this done. You know, most individuals with ADHD, that's kind of hard to do. You need some break. Um, but there's also to always keep in mind, there's a spectrum of ADHD. Some people are more mild, some people are more severe, and everybody is different with the strengths and the challenges, even within the ADHD diagnosis. So Tabitha is going to talk about a little shift. You know, the myths and the facts are, are important to go over because I think they're still streaming out there in the universe. Um, but it is so important to bring to the surface ADHD strengths um, and the things that individuals do well with. So every, um, we talked about um, every, um, it spans, <laughs> it actually, so ADHD spans across um, intelligence um, and there's not one brain that's the same. Um, and so each brain, each person is unique. So every, um, every presentation, there are some hallmarks, but every also presentations and the way that it affects each person can be a little bit different as well. Um, and so we also, one of the things that Lori and I, um, we talk about with students and also other people is this, this shift from thinking about it as a disorder um, to something that a, an impairment or disorder um, that's uh, placed on the individual and something that's a negative when actually there are so many gifts and strengths that um, that people with ADHD have. So, next slide. so we find, and this, again, everyone's different. Um, these aren't something that every single person with ADHD, um, these particular um, strengths are going to show up in every person, but we do find that there are um, trends that people with ADHD are very creative. Um, very, they can make logical leaps that are maybe um, other people don't, um, and many of their peers, and oftentimes are very big pictures or strategic thinkers, and they're great innovators. Um, and so we have many, many um, uh, entrepreneurs in, around the world who are ADHD, many actors, writers, so it really um, spans different types of disciplines and um, gifts. Sure. Okay. Thank you for your attention to that slew of slides. Um, 
and we are happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you guys very much for that informative uh, information on, you know, the myths, the strengths, and some of the facts with ADHD. So uh, I have a list of questions that some of you have already submitted to me in the Google Doc form. So I'm going to go through some of that. Michelle, if you want to unmute, I know that you had a question here. So, um, hello, my name is Michelle and I um, and the te- I'm a teacher and I was thinking about the number of kids who seem to be being moved off of 504 plans. There seems to be a trend in education that either there's this movement away from, well, there's a diagnosis, so therefore there should be a 504 plan. And I was curious about what your thoughts are on that. Um, I know that my own children have, we've had meetings where that has been in question. Isn't this just really about good teaching and not necessarily about a 504? So I wanted to throw that at you and see what you thought about that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we both could say so much about that. Yeah. Um, Sorry. You know, dogs. So, so I guess I'll, I'll just start with saying that when you're talking about um, whether a student is going to college or not, they're going to go right into the workforce. We're talking about also there has um, legal implications of, of, of doing that. Um, it's also in, it's a, um, a way to historically track um, what, types of accommodations that a student and what's going on with the student because those that's all information that's going to be needed for accommodation later if that person should need it whether they are a student in higher ed or whether they go into the workforce it's information for them um, themselves it's just the metacognitive um, aspects so that they know what's going on Um, and then also so it builds over time and then also for higher education um, in order to um, qualify for accommodations um, once in higher education to refine them sometimes. I would also add to Tabitha's information Shell that um, students by law are entitled to um, free and appropriate public education, when it comes to higher education, it's access to education. And so, you know, we know that the IEP is there to do, um, you know, to do certain types of um, work, right? They're doing a skill-based improvement of something, whether it's reading or writing or math. When it comes to a 504 plan, a 504 plan is an accommodation. So, uh, you know, I think that school systems thinks that it's a step up, but that accommodation, like Tabitha is saying, once you get to high school, and I've had uh, one of my stepsons take was removed from a 504 plan in high school. Then there is that record is not there. Now it doesn't mean that a student still wouldn't be entitled in college to receive something because there's uh, still a diagnosis and there still might be a psychoeducational assessment, et cetera, and there's still a disability. Just because you're diagnosed doesn't mean that you're, you have a disability. It depends on the impact and the functional level of that disability in the environment. But um, I think it's really important to make sure that whoever's on that 504, if they're getting what they need in the classroom, wonderful. But if they are not, going back to that table and ensuring, because that is a right to receive that, then they need to go back and, and receive that. Yeah, I feel like it's it's an excellent question. It's a really important question. Um, and I feel like we could do an hour talk just mm-hmm. on that question at least <laughs> probably a few well, hours <laughs> i mean there's there are some more months in the year so we'll we'll see if we can get you guys back in and, and talk <laughs> a little bit more about it 
so Kevin Grady asked, uh, they missed the beginning of the presentation and he just wanted to know if you guys had gone over ADD, the difference between ADD and ADHD. Uh, Kevin, I just stole your thunder, but if you want to elaborate on that question more, you can unmute and uh, ask the question. Hi, yeah, so um, that was actually my, my partner, Colin, um, his question, um, where we both work with students. I'm a middle school teacher and he's a speech language pathologist. And, um, you know, this is a topic that we're, you know, we're, we're always learning about, but it, it seems to be that we get, uh, you know, as educators conflicting information about like whether, you know, one or one of these terms is outdated because some people say that, you know, it's not necessarily characterized by hyperactivity. Some people say, oh, well, the hyperactivity is mental hyperactivity and not physical hyperactivity. So we were just wondering um, what your thoughts uh, are on using one uh, or either of those terms um, over the other. There are three different types of ADHD, actually. So right now, the overall term is ADHD. And thank you for your question. Is it Connor? Who's your partner? Colin. Colin, thank you. Colin, thank you for that question. Because um, that is confusing, right? Every, you know, Years ago, we'd always say ADD, ADD, and that would kind of encompass everybody. And then someone might say, but they have hyperactivity. But there are, so you can be diagnosed. Everyone, the umbrella is ADHD. And you can be diagnosed with ADHD inattentive type. Hey, Colin. ADHD hyperactive and impulsive, or combined type, which is all of those things. So it can be any or all of the above, right, with symptoms, depending on the diagnosis. Yeah, and it, so it's a, it's a change. It's also a current change um, in, um, in the labeling. So the diagnose, the way we diagnose, so it, that's something that's current. And the switch from um, AD, um, or an, an ADHD, so with combining it. And um, so I think I'll just, this is just a, something that I'm particularly, I think, um, sensitive to is that also with identity, that there are people will come across, and I've worked with many students who are, they've, they have, um, once they find out, you know, oh, this is what it is, there's a name for it. So this is also part of my identity, right? And so when you say, oh, ADHD, when you try to change it up, because it's the new, you know, in um, diagnostics, it's the new way we, we term it. Um, there are some people who are really sensitive to that. So I just wanted to put that out there because we'll see that um, because that is also disability um, um, identity that's kind of Part of it as as well, and so since some sensitivity um, to it among among different people. Awesome question, awesome answers, uh, Michelle. I know you have another question, but it pairs with another one later down. So I'm just going to combine the two. Um, Sam has a question. So Samantha, if you want to unmute and ask your question, that'd be great. Um, my question is, how does ADHD manifest in like a younger child? Because I teach preschool and I see a lot of children coming into my classroom that are three, fours. And although, you know, people or pediatricians slash educators are reluctant to kind of put that label or diagnosis on them, you can see that there is definitely um, a inability to regulate. So I'm just wondering, like, if you see that in younger children and how we can advocate for them to get the support that they need when they're, you know, so young. Yeah. 
We're kind of a little bit outside of our wheelhouse in that we often don't work with super young children, but just in our experience and kind of answering these questions and, and being around people who are interested in this, um, you know, children can't be typically diagnosed until the age of four and that there are so many different developmental things that could be going on prior to four and so much growth and so at the, such varied growth in development. Um, and I think that's why a part of the reason that it can't be diagnosed till later. Um, so I'm not as familiar with the more um, chronic symptoms of children who might be exhibiting things at such a young age. Um, and that might be something more for you know, a parent's pediatrician to at least address um, and or if there's someone else that they're working with within a school system, um, you know, if there is a more knowledgeable person in the school system. Um, but I, there's definitely, a, you know, some a connection with um, many other things that we do in development when we're so young. So I think that's the hesitancy with not making a diagnosis until the age of four. And I, I just wanted to add, I think that the word um, possibility and being able to monitor um, and track over time is really important so that we're keeping an eye on what's going on and the experience for that child is really important. So always, you know, um, saying that there's a possibility that this could be what's going on if you don't want to, you know, if we're not wanting to label too early or diagnose too early, but to just really make sure that even like in paperwork in school, that there's possibility and that we're going to continue to monitor and track. And I think that that's really key. Perfect. Next question is from Heather. And Heather, if you want to unmute and ask your question, it's all yours. So I have two boys. They both have the ADD, ADHD. Um, my question is, uh, my older son does not have a 504 plan right now. And I'm, um, I think I'm going to move to get a 504 plan with him being in fifth grade in the concern for middle school with that, do you recommend like a full evaluation prior to, um, kind of doing the 504 or do you recommend just doing the 504? That's a really good question. Um, it's making me think of a couple of things. Makes me think of, hi, Heather. <laughs> um, thank you for your question. Um, that students, you know, you know, there are students I've had uh, working at UConn, I've had PhD students come to me for the first time to request accommodations. They've never had anything with a diagnosis of ADHD and dyslexia, right? And so we have to be really careful around too, understanding that sometimes some people need something and other times they don't need anything. And so that would be my first step is if, again, if they're getting what they need out of the classroom, out of the school, out of how they function, they may not need to access other accommodations. And also the difference between the 504 of accommodation. So accommodations are things like extended time on exams, maybe a copy of notes, um, having a reader for an exam. There are things that kind of allow students to demonstrate what they know. And if they didn't have them, they wouldn't be demonstrating what they know, they'd be demonstrating the challenge that they have. Versus the IEP, which as I said you know, earlier, is more like skill-based. We're improving skills to kind of meet grade level. So you kind of have to figure out what's most appropriate. An, an updated psychoeducational assessment, depending on when they, the last one they had, it has to be within a certain time frame because then the recency effect kind of kicks in. Um, 
and your school would know that. But, um, you know, I also am always cautious of putting students through a lot of psychoed evals in that statistically they don't change significantly over time. The diagnosis is the diagnosis typically, and it stands the test of time. If you're seeing some significant change, that might be different. Or if someone's recommending that, that might be a little bit different. If you're trying to garner other things that are going on, you know, then you might be requesting that. But like Tabitha mentioned earlier, um, that you know, you also though, as you're as as a child gets older, and this is kind of our arena, and they're entering college, you you know, that psychoeducational assessment is going to be key closer to the time of college to kind of submit to a disability services office to say what accommodations might I uh, be able to request and utilize in the college environment. So yeah. with my, specifically with my son, he has been diagnosed via pediatrician school input and our input um, and Steve. <laughs> um, so he's never had a psycho eval. Um, and I'm just wondering if it be worth getting the ball rolling or, you know, right now he is the average student yeah. doing okay. Yeah, we would say yes. Yeah, emphatically yes. Particularly if you're getting input from other people that are saying, yeah, we think this is kind of what it is, but a psycho eval also to make sure that there's an assessment for ADHD using a tool that diagnoses ADHD, and that might be with your school or it might be an outside source. You know, the psychoeducational assessment is supposed to be ruling out things or ruling in things. You know, is there a learning disability along with this? Is there not? About 65% of students with ADHD also have a learning disability. So, you know, appropriate testing and good testing is really important. Okay. Yeah, your career, um, I think I can't emphasize enough the, um, the historical aspect of um, both for, for metacognition for one's own knowing, um, uh, but also for from a legal standpoint as well, is that, um, that these documents are really, really important. So they're important to hold on to, they're important to have. Um, and so just thinking about them as historical documents, as one's history is, is really key moving forward again, for interpersonal reasons and also for legal reasons. Okay, thank you. Great question, great answers. Uh, so we're gonna move on to one of the big hitters. So we have two more questions that are in the chat. The next one's a big hitter. And then we're gonna do a lightning round of the previously asked questions through the Google Doc because I figured out technology and got it back up. So awesome. <laughs> um, and then we can just kind of have a parting uh, conversation about where you can connect with any of us if you have any questions. And uh, yeah, so perfect. So the big hitter here, I think, which is on a, a lot of people's minds is, um, can you guys talk about ADHD and how the virtual learning model affects learners with ADHD, especially in attention? And especially since we've all moved more towards these Zoom kind of meetings, um, what are you guys seeing that is coming out and do you have any tips or resources on how to manage that? Such a good question. Such a good question. Yeah, so um, I have my mind's like, okay, what, what can I, um, <laughs> what first? Um, yeah, so I would say, you know, if we understand 
ADHD and what's going on and the, um, the issues that it, it causes, then we, what we want to do is to control for that within the online environment in whatever way that we can and also um, in like study space and where you're actually doing your work. So that was, I feel like that was kind of um, very esoteric. Um, but um, one of the things that we see is just the course design um, is just, it's just bad. Like it's just predominantly, you know, not great design. Um, and so when we have just the architecture, I mean, if you think about like learning management systems that students are learning or are um, using, they're, um, they're still kind of coming along. They're not, they're all different. Students are using a variety of them. So if they're using them now in um, elementary or um, secondary education, it's sure to be different in higher ed and everyone uses something different. So it's basically just an executive function nightmare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so it takes a lot of um, organization. And so it's, you know, the question really, it's typically about how do I time manage and how do I organize? So those are the really biggest kind of like concerns or um, things if we can address in an online environment. Um, and so it's just it's a question of how do we do it? Um, but those are really the two key areas um, that are an issue. And, um, and then just screen fatigue, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> you're going to be done after an hour or so of, of, of this, and it's just, it, it becomes really difficult. So, um, and that's just the reality of, of the situation. But again, just those two things, this organization um, and, um, and time management are, are really huge. Concur with it all. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle has another question. Michelle, you're like a, a heavy hitter with the questions. This is great. Um, this might be one to follow up on emails, though. So if if people are interested, if we can generate um, enough of people who would be interested, maybe uh, we could have an email chain going on. But uh, Michelle, go ahead and ask your question. Which one? I had a thousand. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the psych ed. You know, I, I guess I was thinking about. Um, what you said about the psych ed eval. And at this point, hi, Ryan. Um, at this point, I think it might be worth it for us to pursue that outside of the school. And I have been searching for the elusive list of who does this and where, and it seems sort of hard to find. So any- Find that list. I yeah. can actually provide it to Steve. Yeah, and, I, yeah. and I, have, I have everyone's email, so I can do an email chain out just like I did with the Zoom link uh, once I get it from Lori, so. Would, would that, of, oh, go ahead, Michelle. I was going to say, would that test be able to separate sort of anxiety and ADHD? Would that give us more insight into that piece, do you think? Um, a, an assessor who is, is experienced and is doing this well will be able to do a piece of this inventory that would be addressing the emotional piece of what's going on. I say that, and also I will say, um, Tabitha, chime in, um, you know, that anxiety is so commonly diagnosed along with ADHD now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I feel as though in working with students, particularly, you know, the ADHD, if other factors are involved, kind of came first. And this challenge of trying to manage one's life within 
uh, a, a demanding executive function world, the structured daily world of school. Um, you know, I, at some point it has to produce something to manage it and that, and, and, and it comes out, you know? And so sometimes for a lot of students, they, I've had college students say to me, you know, I kind of harness this. I try to harness this to kind of get through what I need to get through and activate. Um, but it just is so frequent now that it goes hand in hand. You know, it's, it's always shocking to me. We've been in this field for so long that something hasn't kind of taken a turn to kind of just provide a little bit of a different day, whether it's that online environment or even the school day to make this management a little bit better. Yeah, I think um, and this is also another um, very long <laughs> topic is mm -hmm. ADHD and anxiety. And sometimes it's kind of like, I think the chicken and the egg conversation um, with this topic. Um, and, and it is very, it can be very difficult to tease out um, and not going to do it. Like the expectation should not be to be able to do it perfectly because that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're really focusing and it, I guess one of the things that we, I, that I had in my notes to mention and I, I didn't mention, and so I wanted to mention now is that ADHD is highly um, contextual. Mm -hmm. And so um, sometimes it could, you know, and so with also it's, so it's gonna change when as the, I always wanna say student, because it could be person, <laughs> you know, not just be a student, but um, as the, um, the person ages and mature and brain maturation, um, you know, the symptoms could be heightened or not. And then also in the learning environment or the working environment, it's gonna show up a little bit different, differently as well. Um, and that's also why history, <laughs> having this historical, like this kind of background in events is really important. Um, but you're not always gonna be able to tease that out. Um, I can see, I just got a little bit in my own head, but um, I was thinking too, even just environment to environment, like you're yeah. saying, you know, you're going to demonstrate certain things in one environment and another environment, your strengths may come out because that environment isn't make, placing the demand on the executive function skills as heavily. Um, so it really depends. Yeah. So it's also, so I guess a multi-prong approach also with somebody, um, if we're looking at, you know, trying to figure out if it's anxiety or if it's ADHD or possibly a high likelihood that it could be both, um, that we have a multi-prong kind of um, approach to mitigation as well is important. So it could be therapy and medication and also looking at one's just environment and, you know, um, uh, you know, not have a, having like multiple um, tabs open <laughs> and having um, some more predictable workspace, these kinds of things. So it could be multi-prong as well. Sorry, I went off a little bit on a tangent. <laughs> Perfect. A big topic. Good job, guys. So we're going to do a lightning round. So we'll, we'll try to keep uh, the answers to a minimum. If you want more of an answer, you have the emails. Let's follow up. I'll also put, um, Lori and Tabitha, if you're okay with it, I'll put your emails in, in the chain with that list. And so if people are interested, they can just send you emails and follow up and, and kind of touch base that way. All right. So first question in the lightning round is, do you feel that kids with ADHD function better in fully in-person uh, educational environments? Not necessarily. No, yeah, not necessarily. <laughs> no, highly individualized, right? Yeah. Still highly individualized. Yeah. I think that if an online environment provides opportunity for certain things and was like Tabitha was saying, if it architecturally was built in a different way, 
Um, you know, we just haven't had that experience in our public education systems. It might be better for some and worse for others. I think what the public school setting can do automatically is it allows for movement, it allows for activity, um, it allows for a break in concentration, which the online environment really doesn't provide that, that much of. And we didn't mention this tonight, so I know this is the speed round, um, but exercise can be equally as effective as medication in the research as can meditation. Um, oftentimes though, you know, you have to remember these are executive function challenges and you have to do these things every day at a certain time of day for a certain amount of time, et cetera. That can be the challenge with implementing both of those. But exercise changes the chemistry of the brain, as we all know. So moving around helps. And I know people who teach meditation and exercise, in case anyone's interested. All right. Uh, any tips or this one's a little bit different. Any tips or tricks when you live in a house where each person has ADHD and everyone is trying to work or go to school at the same time from home? Oh, have a sense of humor. <laughs> um. I, you know, that's where scheduling could be. I would, I would say that probably just having some uh, group and uh, discussion about scheduling and, um, you know, what is the daily activities like? What are the, what's a household like? And then setting up um, some uh, schedules for different people. Yeah. So. And prioritizing, really letting go of the things that are truly, truly not important and maybe prioritizing the top three that we all kind of need to do and how we function in a day and let the rest go. All right, let's see. So some of these uh, have been answered in your presentation, which is really good. Uh, would you love, would you have any record? <laughs> Sorry, this is phrased a little bit weird. Uh, do you have any recommend recommended reading to help those with ADHD who have partners that also have ADHD? Uh, there definitely is, go ahead. I would yeah, just say go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I. you know what? Um, Specifically around relationships, I don't have a lot hanging in my top of my head. I don't know about you, Tabitha, but starting with Thomas Brown and understanding ADHD is going to be, again, that foundation mm -hmm. of why is this person doing this thing? Um, and go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I was. Yeah, I would. I would say that that's actually key. So, um, so <laughs> this book is, would be um, an excellent foundation. Um, piece. And I, there's just not, um, unfortunately, not a lot of literature out there about just specifically ADHD and, you know, adult relationships. And a lot of it is on kids. And so, um, but we, I mean, we do know that it does hinder a lot of relationships, but specifically like couples work, um, there's not, unfortunately. All right. How do you manage uh, both without medication ADHD and ADD, how do you manage without medication? And does diet affect symptoms? There is nothing in the research up to date about diet affecting ADHD and improving it, nothing. Um, the research is very clear around medication and ADHD and the um, Im impact. And as we mentioned earlier, the efficacy rates of 70 to 80% of having some improvement um, in concentration and regulation of emotion. Now for overall health, of course, right? We all know that what we eat is gonna impact how we feel and so many other things, but um, the research is really clear on that actually. 
Yeah, the only thing I would add to that just to enhance brain function is really looking at nutrition, uh, like a, a B complex vitamin or things high in B vitamins, because they help the neurons fire in the brain a little bit. And then if you do want to kind of just manage the nervous system responses, it's uh, a higher protein diet sometimes is helpful for that. Not completely high protein, but really focusing on getting the full chain of amino acids to help the brain functioning and digestive system can be helpful. But again, it's, it's not a, uh, instead of medication, it's a with medication and just general health kind of stuff. Digestive health is really help, uh, helpful with like managing mental health stuff. So looking at probiotics as well can be really helpful. Um, but, but like Lori was saying, there's no magical food that's going to do the work of medication and um, just enhancing the, the brain functioning and connection to digestive system could be helpful with that. All right. Uh, and I think one last one, because I think this is, has been brought up, but I don't think we've gotten any tips or tricks on it. Um, how do you increase organizational skills and how do you teach that to either yourself or to uh, your loved ones? Well, teaching it to yourself, I think that's kind of, if you haven't, if you haven't acquired them at, by a certain age, I think it can be challenging certainly to teach it to yourself. Um, but there are certainly places you can go to, one is us. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of how we kind of work with students is first finding out just that, where is the point of performance kind of, what skills do you bring to the table that you already know, and then what's being affected maybe by what you don't know and don't implement. And then starting to say, okay, um, through trial and error, um, let's introduce uh, a goal. If, if, it's if it's organizing schoolwork, say, for example, better, then it's really introducing some ideas. Some of them are super simple. You know, people today, particularly teenagers, the cell phone is a critical piece of organizing themselves with alarms, with scheduling. Um, you know, I work with a student right now who does use a planner that is highly unusual in my experience, but a planner can work for kinesthetic learners, people who like to color code information, works extremely well if they're more of a visual, um, of a strength in the visual realm. Um, it, it just depends. There are, I mean, people use whiteboards, people use chalkboards in their spaces. Yeah. It depends on, yeah, I think it, it just really depends on the person. There's a lot of, there's some trial and error that goes on with that as well. So what works and what doesn't, sometimes it's a combination of things. Um, it could be that someone needs to see, um, you know, have both be able to toggle back and forth if it's electronic to something where it's list form and then also kind of block all everything all at one time so they can see everything. Um, it could be, you know, a, a wall calendar and a um, uh, electronic calendar, but it is being able to have typically um, lists and and just that somehow to have a, a planner that you can kind of check on check off and then also be able to go back if you're unsure and revisit as many times as you need to is just seems to be um kind of the cornerstone kind yeah. of a, the, the pillar of of organization yeah. um so and you've mentioned to me too that also scheduling time to do that. Yes. <laughs> Scheduling time to actually Be look organized. at what you have to do and then put it in a place that you know you can check it off and to prioritize what's the most important, what's your A and then what's your D. 
Um, so that, and then what's A1, what's A2, what's A3, and then what's down to, you know, D4, D5. And so if you're focusing on those priorities, you're going to get the majority done and kind of be in decent shape. And maybe the bottom few might get let go of a little bit, but that's okay. Um, if you're able to complete it, great. All right. Thank you guys so much for your presentation. It was really insightful. Uh, had a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, conversation about these ins and outs of ADHD, what the myths are, what the facts are, and what the strengths are. So uh, just want to take a time, take a second to thank you for your time and the effort you put into this and, and sharing with us so openly about those things. Um, so that's it. That's our first segment on Stigma is Curable. If you're interested in learning more as we go forward, feel free to send me a message at the beginning of this it had all our contact information on what we do. Um, so you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on um, Instagram, our podcast, everything of that nature for what's coming up. And if you have special requests, if you guys have any ideas of what might be helpful to add to this, you know, just talking, we came up with different ideas, uh, maybe having you back to talk more at length about stuff. But I think things like anxiety, we have uh, a conversation planned on that things like mindfulness and meditation. We're working on some of that stuff. Our next one is going to be February 15th. It's about racism and mental health. If you're interested in that, send me an email and I'll include you on all of that. But we're, we'll be posting and putting stuff out there. I just say we thank you so much, Steve. Yes, thank oh, you. For this opportunity for everyone participating, we'll send you information about that resource list for assessors and some other resources that people might find helpful as well. Perfect. And I'll get that out to everyone. So Thank you. no problem. Have a good night, guys. We want you to help us make a difference. So if you could check us out on Facebook, it's under the title Promethean Project Incorporated. On Instagram, we're the Promethean Project, all one word. Our website is the PrometheanProject.org. Our email is info at, you guessed it, the Promethean Project.org. <laughs> and then we do have a podcast. It's called Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. It's uh, bi-weekly. So we have a new guest on every two weeks. And you can find it on any streaming uh, app service for podcasts. Spotify, Google, Apple. It's on all of those. <laughs>